Book Three, Chapter Nineteen of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Three, Chapter Nineteen. The evening of the Muirwell Hall dinner party proved to be a date of some importance in the lives of two or three persons. Rose was not likely to forget it. Langham carried about with him the picture of the great drawing-room, its stately light and shade, and its scattered figures, through many a dismal subsequent hour. And to Robert it was the beginning of a period of practical difficulties such as his fortunate youth had never yet encountered. His conjecture had hit the mark. The squire's sentiments towards him, which had been on the whole friendly enough, with the exception of a slight nuance of contempt provoked in Mr. Wendover's mind by all forms of the clerical calling, had been completely transformed in the course of the afternoon before the dinner-party, and transformed by the report of his agent. Henslow, who knew certain sides of the squire's character by heart, had taken time by the forelock. For fourteen years before Robert entered the Paris he had been king of it. Mr. Preston, Robert's predecessor, had never given him a moment's trouble. The agent had developed a habit of drinking, had favoured his friends and spited his enemies, and had allowed certain distant portions of the estate to go finally to ruin, quite undisturbed by any sentimental meddling of the priestly sort. Then the old rector had been gathered to the majority, and this long-legged busybody had taken his place, a man, according to the agent, as full of communistical notions as an egg is full of meat, and always ready to poke his nose into other people's business. And as all men like mastery, but especially Scotchmen, and as during the, even the first few months of the new rector's tenure of office it became tolerably evident to Henslow that young Ellesmere would soon become the ruling force of the neighbourhood unless measures were taken to prevent it, the agent, over his nocturnal drams, had taken sharp and cunning counsel with himself concerning the young man. The state of Marlent had been originally the result of indolence and caprice on his part, rather than of any set purpose of neglect. As soon, however, as it was brought to his notice by Ellesmere, who did it to begin with in the friendliest way, it became a point of honour with the agent to let the place go to the devil, nay, to hurry it there. For some time, notwithstanding, he avoided an open breach with the rector. He met Ellesmere's remonstrances by a more or less civil show of argument, belied every now and then by the sarcasm of his coarse blue eye, and so far the two men had kept outwardly on terms. Ellesmere had reason to know that on one or two occasions of difficulty in the parish, Henslow had tried to do him a mischief. The attempts, however, had not greatly succeeded, and their ill-success had probably excited in Ellesmere a confidence of ultimate victory, which had tended to keep him cool in the presence of Henslow's hostility. But Henslow had been all along merely waiting for the squire. He had served the owner of the Muirwell estate for fourteen years, and if he did not know that owner's peculiarities by this time, might he obtain certain warm corners in the next life to which he was fond of consigning other people? It was not easy to cheat the squire out of money, but it was quite easy to play upon his ignorance of the details of English land management, ignorance guaranteed by the learned habits of a lifetime, on his complete lack of popular sympathy, and on the contempt felt by the disciple of Bismarck and Mommsen for all forms of altruistic sentiment. The squire despised priests. He hated philanthropic cants. Above all things he respected his own leisure, and was abnormally, irritably sensitive as to any possible inroads upon it. 
All these things Henslow knew, and all these things he utilised. He saw the squire within forty-eight hours of his arrival at Muirwell. His fancy picture of Robert and his doings was introduced with adroitness, and coloured with great skill, and he left the squire walking up and down his library, chafing alternately at the monstrous fate which had planted this sentimental agitator at his gates, and at the memory of his own misplaced civilities towards the intruder. In the evening those civilities were abundantly avenged, as we have seen. Robert was much perplexed as to his next step. His heart was very sore. The condition of Mile End, those gaunt-eyed women and wasted children, all the sordid details of their unjust, avoidable suffering weighed upon his nerves perpetually. But he was conscious that this state of feeling was one of tension, perhaps of exaggeration, and though it was impossible he should let the matter alone, he was anxious to do nothing rashly. However, two days after the dinner-party, he met Henslow on the hill leading up to the rectory. Robert would have passed the man with the stiffening of his tall figure and the slightest possible salutation. But the agent, just returned from a round wherein the bars of various local inns had played a conspicuous part, was in a truculent mood and stopped to speak. He took up the line of insolent condolence with the rector on the impossibility of carrying his wishes with regards to Mile End into effect. They had been laid before the squire, of course, but the squire had his own ideas and wasn't just easy to manage. "'Seen him yet, sir?' Henslow wound up jauntily, every line of his flushed countenance, the full lips under the fair beard and the light prominent eyes, expressing a triumph he hardly cared to conceal. "'I have seen him, but I have not talked to him on this particular matter,' said the rector quietly, though the red mounted in his cheek. "'You may, however, be very sure, Mr. Henslow, that everything I know about Mile End the squire shall know before long.' "'Oh, Lord bless me, sir!' cried Henslow with a guffaw. "'It's all one to me. And if the squire ain't satisfied with the way his work's done now, why, he can take you on as a second string, you know. You'd show us all I'd be bound how to make the money fly.' Then Robert's temper gave way, and he turned upon the half-drunken brute before him with a few home-truths delivered with a rapier-like force which for the moment staggered Henslow, who turned from red to purple. The rector, with some of those pitiful memories of the hamlet of which he had glimpses in his talk with Langham, burning at his heart, felt the man no better than a murderer, and as good as told him so. Then, without giving him time to reply, Robert strode on, leaving Henslow planted in the pathway. But he was hardly up the hill before the agent, having recovered himself by dint of copious expletives, was looking after him with a grim chuckle. He knew his master, and he knew himself, and he thought between them they would about manage to keep that young spark in order. Meanwhile Robert went straight home into his study, and there fell upon ink and paper. What was the good of protracting the matter any longer? Something must and should be done for these people, if not one way, than another. So he wrote to the squire, showing the letter to Catherine when it was done, lest there should be anything over-fierce in it. It was the simple record of twelve months' experience, told with dignity and strong feeling. Henslow was barely mentioned in it, and the chief burden of the letter was to implore the squire to come and inspect certain portions of his property with his own eyes. The rector would be at his service any day or hour. Husband and wife went anxiously through the document, softening here, improving there, and then it was sent to the hall. 
Robert waited nervously through the day for an answer. In the evening, while he and Catherine were in the footpath after dinner, watching a chilly autumnal moonrise over the stubbles of the cornfield, the answer came. Ah, said Robert dubiously, as he opened it, holding it up to the moonlight. Can't be said to be lengthy. He and Catherine hurried into the house. Robert read the letter and handed it to her without a word. After some curt references to one or two miscellaneous points raised in the latter part of the rector's letter, the squire wound up as follows. As for the bulk of your communication, I am at a loss to understand the vehemence of your remarks on the subject of my mile-end property. My agent informed me shortly after my return home that you had been concerning yourself greatly, and as he conceived unnecessarily, about the matter. Allow me to assure you that I have full confidence in Mr. Henslow, who has been in the district for as many years as you have spent months in it, and whose authority on points connected with the business management of my estate naturally carries more weight with me, if you will permit me to say so, than your own. I am, sir, your obedient servant, Roger Wendover. Catherine returned the letter to her husband with a look of dismay. He was standing with his back to the chimney-piece, his hands thrust far into his pockets, his upper lip quivering. In his happy, expansive life this was the sharpest personal rebuff that had ever happened to him. He could not but smart under it. "'Not a word,' he said, tossing his hair back impetuously, as Catherine stood opposite watching him. "'Not one single word about the miserable people themselves. What kind of stuff can the man be made of?' "'Does he believe you?' asked Catherine, bewildered. "'If not, one must try and make him,' he said energetically, after a moment's pause. "'Tomorrow, Catherine, I go down to the hall and see him.' She quietly acquiesced. And the following afternoon, first thing after luncheon, she watched him go, her tender, inspiring look dwelling with him as he crossed the park, which was lying delicately wrapped in one of the whitest of autumnal mists, the sun just playing through it with pale, invading shafts. The butler looked at him with some doubtfulness. It was never safe to admit visitors for the squire without orders. But he and Robert had special relations. As the possessor of a bass voice worthy of his girth, Vincent, under Robert's rule, had become the pillar of the choir, and it was not easy for him to refuse the rector. So Robert was led in, through the hall, and down the long passage to the curtained door, which he knew so well. "'Mr. Ellesmere, sir!' There was a sudden hasty movement. Robert passed a magnificent lacquered screen newly placed round the door, and found himself in the squire's presence. The squire had half risen from his seat in a capacious chair, with a litter of books round it, and confronted his visitor with a look of surprised annoyance. The figure of the rector, tall, thin, and youthful, stood out against the delicate browns and whites of the book-lined walls. The great room, so impressively bare when Robert and Langham had last seen it, was now full of the signs of a busy man's constant habitation. An odour of smoke pervaded it. The table in the window was piled with books just unpacked, and the half-emptied case from which they had been taken lay on the ground beside the squire's chair. "'I persuaded Vincent to admit me, Mr. Wendover,' said Robert, advancing hat in hand, while the squire hastily put down the German professor's pipe he'd just been enjoying, and coldly accepted his proffered greeting. "'I should have preferred not to disturb you without an appointment, but after your letter it seemed to me some prompt personal explanation was necessary.' 
the squire stiffly motioned towards a chair, which Robert took, and then slipped back into his own, his wrinkled eyes fixed on the intruder. Robert, conscious of almost intolerable embarrassment, but maintaining in spite of it an excellent degree of self-control, plunged at once into business. He took the letter he had just received from the squire as a text, made a good-humoured defence of his own proceedings, described his attempt to move Henslow, and the reluctance of his appeal from the man to the master. The first thing he allowed himself to say about Henslow were in perfect temper, though by no means without an edge. Then, having disposed of the more personal aspects of the matter, he paused, and looked hesitatingly at the face opposite him, more like a bronze mask at this moment than a human countenance. The squire, however, gave him no help. He had received his remarks so far in perfect silence, and seeing there were more to come, he waited for them with the same rigidity of look and attitude. So, after a moment or two, Robert went on to describe in detail some of those individual cases of hardship and disease at Mile End, during the preceding year, which could be most clearly laid to the sanitary condition of the place. Filth, damp, leaking roofs, foul floors, poisoned water. He traced to each some ghastly human ill, telling his stories with a nervous brevity, a suppressed fire, which would have burnt them into the sense of almost any other listener. Not one of these woes, but he and Catherine had tended with sickening pity and labour of body and mind. That side of it he kept rigidly out of sight. But all that he could hurl against the squire's feeling, as it were, he gathered up, strangely conscious through it all, of his own young, persistent yearning to right himself with this man, whose mental history, as it lay chronicled in these rooms, had been to him at a time of intellectual hunger so stimulating, so enriching. But passion and reticence and hidden sympathy were alike lost upon the squire. Before he paused, Mr. Wendover had already risen restlessly from his chair, and from the rug was glowering down on his unwelcome visitor. Good heavens! Had he come home to be lectured in his own library by this fanatical slip of a parson? As for his stories, the squire barely took the trouble to listen to them. Every popularity-hunting fool with a passion for putting his hand into other people's pockets can tell pathetic stories, but it was intolerable that his scholar's privacy should be at the mercy of one of the tribe. "'Mr. Ellesmere,' he broke out at last, with contemptuous emphasis, "'I imagine it would have been better, infinitely better, to have spared both yourself and me the disagreeables of this interview. However, I am not sorry we should understand each other.' I have lived a life which has at least doubled the length of yours in very tolerable peace and comfort. The world has been good enough for me, and I for it, so far. I have been master in my own estate, and intend to remain so. As for the new-fangled ideas of a landowner's duty, with which your mind seems to be full—the scornful irritation of the tone was unmistakable—I have never dabbled in them, nor do I intend to begin now. I am like the rest of my kind. I have no money to chuck away in building schemes, in order that the rector of the parish may pose as the apostle of the agricultural labourer. That, however, is neither here nor there. What is to the purpose is that my business affairs are in the hands of a business man, deliberately chosen and approved by me, and that I have nothing to do with them, nothing at all," he repeated with emphasis. It may seem to you very shocking. You may regard it as the object in life of the English landover to inspect the pigsties and amend the habits of the English labourer. 
I don't quarrel with the conception. I only ask you not to expect me to live up to it. I am a student, first and foremost, and desire to be left to my books. Mr. Henslow is there on purpose to, to protect my literary freedom. What he thinks desirable is good enough for me, as I have already informed you. I am sorry for it, if his methods do not commend themselves to you. But I have yet to learn that the rector of the parish has an ex officio right to interfere between a landlord and his tenants. Robert kept his temper with some difficulty. After a pause, he said, feeling desperately, however, that the suggestion was not likely to improve matters, "'If I were to take all the trouble and all the expense off your hands, Mr. Wendover, would it be impossible for you to authorise me to make one or two alterations most urgently necessary for the improvement of the Marlend cottages?' The squire burst into an angry laugh. "'I have never yet been in the habit, Mr. Ellesmere, of doing my repairs by public subscription.' You ask a little too much from an old man's powers of adaptation. Robert rose from his seat, his hand trembling as it rested on his walking-stick. Mr. Wendover, he said, speaking at last with a flash of answering scorn in his young, vibrating voice, what I think you cannot understand is that at any moment a human creature may sicken and die, poisoned by the state of your property, for which you, and nobody else, are ultimately responsible. The squire shrugged his shoulders. "'So you say, Mr. Ellesmere. If true, every person in such a condition has a remedy in his own hands. I force no one to remain on my property.' "'The people who live there,' exclaimed Robert, "'have neither home nor subsistence if they are driven out. Muirwell is full, Symes bad, most of the people old.' "'An eviction, a sentence of death, I suppose,' interrupted the squire, studying him with sarcastic eyes. Well, I have no belief in a Gladstonian Ireland, still less in a radical England. Supply and demand, cause and effect, are enough for me. The Marlone cottages are out of repair, Mr. Ellesmere, so Mr. Henslow tells me, because the site is unsuitable, the type of cottage out of date. People live in them at their peril. I don't pull them down, or rather, correcting himself with exasperating consistency, Mr. Henslow doesn't pull them down, because, like other men, I suppose, he dislikes an outcry. But if the population stays, it stays at its own risk. Now have I made myself plain." The two men eyed one another. "'Perfectly plain,' said Robert quietly. "'Allow me to remind you, Mr. Wendover, that there are other matters than eviction capable of provoking an outcry.' "'As you please,' said the other indifferently. "'I have no doubt I shall find myself in the newspapers before long. If so, I dare say I shall manage to put up with it.' Society is made up for fanatics and the creatures they hunt. If I am to be hunted, I shall be in good company. Robert stood, hat in hand, tormented with a dozen cross-currents of feeling. He was forcibly struck with the blind and comparatively motiveless pugnacity of the squire's conduct. There was an extravagance in it which for the first time recalled to him old Merrick's lucubrations. "'I have done no good, I see, Mr. Wendover.' he said at last, slowly. I wish I could have induced you to do an act of justice and mercy. I wish I could have made you think more kindly of myself. I have failed in both. It is useless to keep you any longer. Good morning." He bowed. The squire also bent forward. 
At that moment Robert caught sight beside his shoulder of an antique standing on the mantelpiece, which was a new addition to the room. It was a head of Medusa, and the frightful stony calm of it struck on Ellesmere's ruffled nerves with extraordinary force. It flashed across him that here was an apt symbol of that absorbing and overgrown life of the intellect which blights the heart and chills the senses. And to that spiritual Medusa the man before him was not the first victim he had known. Possessed with the fancy, the young man made his way into the hall. Arrived there, he looked round with a kind of passionate regret. "'Shall I ever see this again?' he asked himself. During the past twelve months his pleasure in the great house had been much more than sensuous. Within those walls his mind had grown, had reached to a fuller statue than before, and a man loves, or should love, all that is associated with the maturing of his best self. He closed the ponderous doors behind him sadly. The magnificent pile, grander than ever in the sunny autumnal mist which enwrapped it, seemed to look after him as he walked away, mutely wondering that he should have allowed anything so trivial as a peasant's grievance to come between him and its perfections. In the wooded lane outside the rectory gate he overtook Catherine. He gave her his report, and they walked on together arm in arm, a very depressed pair. "'What shall you do next?' she asked him. "'Make out the law of the matter,' he said briefly. "'If you get over the inspector,' said Catherine anxiously, "'I'm tolerably certain Henslow will turn out the people.' He would not dare, Robert thought. At any rate the law existed for such cases, and it was his bounden duty to call the inspector's attention. Catherine did not see what good could be done thereby, and feared harm. But her wifely chivalry felt that he must get through his first serious practical trouble his own way. She saw that he felt himself distressingly young and inexperienced, and would not for the world have harassed him by over-advice. So she let him alone, and presently Robert threw the matter from him with a sigh. "'Let it be a while,' he said, with a shake of his long frame. I shall get morbid over it, if I don't mind. I'm a selfish wretch, too. I know you have worries of your own, wifey." He took her hand under the trees and kissed it with a boyish tenderness. "'Yes,' said Catherine, sighing, and then paused. "'Robert,' she burst out again, "'I'm certain that man made love of a kind to Rose. He will never think of it again, but since the night before last she, to my mind, is simply a changed creature.' "'I don't see it,' said Robert doubtfully. Catherine looked at him with a little angel scorn in her grey eyes. "'That men should make their seeing in such matters the measure of the visible. "'You have been studying the squire, sir. I have been studying Rose.' Then she poured out her heart to him, describing the little signs of change and suffering her anxious sense had noted, in spite of Rose's proud efforts to keep all the world, but especially Catherine, at arm's length and at the end her feeling swept her into a denunciation of Langham, which was to Robert like a breath from the past, from those stern hills wherein he had met her first. The happiness of their married life had so softened or masked all her ruggedness of character that there was a certain joy in seeing those strong forces in her which had struck him first reappear. "'Of course I feel myself to blame,' he said when she stopped. "'But how could one foresee with such an inveterate hermit and recluse?' and I owed him, I owe him, so much. 
"'I know,' said Catherine, but frowning still. It probably seemed to her that their old debt had been more than effaced. "'You will have to send her to Berlin,' said Elsmere after a pause. "'You must play off her music against this unlucky feeling. "'If it exists, it is your only chance.' "'Yes, she must go to Berlin,' said Catherine slowly. Then presently she looked up, a flash of exquisite feeling breaking up the delicate resolution of her face. "'I'm not sad about that, Robert.' Oh, how you've widened my world for me! Suddenly that hour in Marysdale came back to her. They were in the wood-path. She crept inside her husband's arm and put up her face to him, swept away by an overmastering impulse of self-humiliating love. The next day Robert walked over to the little market-town of Churton, saw the discreet and long-established solicitor of the place, and got from him a complete account of the present state of the rural sanitary law. The first step, clearly, was to move the sanitary inspector. If that failed for any reason, then any bona fide inhabitant had an appeal to the local sanitary authority, viz. the Board of Guardians. Robert walked home, pondering his information, and totally ignorant that Henslow, who was always at Churton on market days, had been in the market-place at the moment when the rector's tall figure had disappeared within Mr. Dunstan's office door. That door was unpleasantly known to the agent in connection with some energetic measures for raising money he had been lately under the necessity of employing, and it had a way of attracting his eyes by means of the fascination that often attaches to disagreeable objects. In the evening Rose was sitting listlessly in the drawing-room. Catherine was not there, so her novel was on her lap, and her eyes were staring intently into a world whereof they only had the key. Suddenly there was a ring at the bell. The servant came, and there were several voices and a sound of much shoe-scraping. Then the swing-door leading to the study opened, and Elsmere and Catherine came out. Elsmere stopped with an exclamation. His visitors were two men from Mile End. One was old Milsom, more sallow and palsied than ever. As he stood bent almost double, his old knotted hand resting for support on the table beside him, everything in the little hall seemed to shake with him. The other was Charland, the handsome father of the twins, whose wife had been fed by Catherine with every imaginable delicacy since Robert's last visit to the hamlet. Even his strong youth had begun to show signs of premature decay. The rolling gypsy eyes were growing sunken, the limbs dragged a little. They had come to implore the rector to let Marl End alone. Henslow had been over there in the afternoon, and had given them all very plainly to understand that if Mr. Ellesmere meddled any more, they would all be turned out at a week's notice to shift as they could. "'And if you don't find Thurston Common nice lying this weather, with the winter coming on, you'll know who to thank for it,' the agent had flung behind him as he rode off. Robert turned white. Rose, watching the little scene with listless eyes, saw him towering over the group like an embodiment of wrath and pity. "'If they turn us out, sir,' said old Milsom, wistfully looking up at Ellesmere with blear eyes, "'there'll be nothing left for us but the house for us old ones. Why, Lord bless you, sir, not so bad but we can make shift.' "'You, Milsom,' cried Robert, "'and you've just all but lost your grandchild, and you know your wife will never be the same woman since that bout of fever in the spring, and—' His quick eyes ran over the old man's broken frame, with a world of indignant meaning in them. "'Aye, aye, sir,' 
said Milsom, unmoved. But if it isn't fevers, it's somewhat else. I can make a shilling or two where I be, especially in the first part of the year, in the basket work. My wife, she goes charring up at old Mr. Carter's farm, and Mr. Dodson, him at the father farm. You do give us a bit sometimes. If you get us turned away, we've a bad day's work for all on us, sir. You may take my word on it. And my wife's so ill, Mr. Ellesmere, said Charlotte, and all those childer. I can't walk three miles farther to my work, Mr. Ellesmere. I can't know how. I haven't got the legs for it. Let em be, sir. We'll, we'll rub along. Robert tried to argue the matter. If they would but stand by him, he would fight the matter through, and they should not suffer if he had to get up a public subscription or support them out of his own pocket all the winter. A bold front, and Mr. Henslow must give way. The law was on their side, and every labourer in Surrey would be the better off for their refusal to be housed like pigs and poisoned like vermin. In vain. There is an inexhaustible store of cautious endurance in the poor, against which the keenest reformer constantly throws himself in vain. Elsmere was beaten. The two men got his word, and shuffled off back to their pestilential hovels, a pathetic content beaming on each face. Catherine and Robert went back into the study. Rose heard her brother-in-law's passionate sigh as the door swung behind them. "'Defeated,' she said to herself with a curious accent. "'Well, everybody must have his turn. Robert has been too successful in his life, I think. "'You wretch!' she added after a minute, laying her bright head down on the book before her. Next morning his wife found Elsmere after breakfast busily packing a case of books in the study. They were books from the hall library, which so far had been for months the inseparable companions of his historical work. Catherine stood and watched him sadly. "'Must you, Robert?' "'I won't be beholden to that man for anything an hour longer than I can help,' he answered her. When the packing was nearly finished, he came up to where she stood in the open window. "'Things won't be as easy for us in the future, darling,' he said to her. "'A rector with both squire and agent against him is rather heavily handicapped. We must make up our minds to that.' "'I have no great fear,' she said, looking at him proudly. "'Oh, well, nor I, perhaps,' he admitted after a moment. "'We can hold our own. But I wish—oh, I wish!' And he laid his hand on his wife's shoulder. "'I could have made friends with the squire.' Catherine looked less responsive. "'As squire, Robert, or as Mr. Wendover?' "'As both, of course, but especially as Mr. Wendover.' "'We can do without his friendship,' she said with energy. Robert gave a great stretch, as though to work off his regrets. "'Ah, but,' he said half to himself as his arms dropped, "'if you are just filled with the hunger to know, "'the people who know as much as the squire become very interesting to you.' Catherine did not answer. But probably her heart went out once more in protest, against the knowledge that was to her but a form of revolt against the awful powers of man's destiny. "'However, here go his books,' said Robert. Two days later Mrs. Leyburn and Agnes made their appearance. Mrs. Leyburn all in a flutter concerning the event over which, in her opinion, she had come to preside. In her gentle, fluid mind all impressions were short-lived. She had forgotten how she had brought up her own babies, but Mrs. Thornburg, 
who never had any, have filled her full of nursery lore. She sat retailing a host of second-hand hints and instructions to Catherine, who would every now and then lay her hand smiling on her mother's knee, well pleased to see the flush of pleasure on the pretty old face, and ready, in her patient filial way, to let herself be experimented on to the utmost, if it did but make the poor foolish thing happy. Then came a night when every soul in the quiet rectory, even hot, smarting, rose, was possessed by one thought through many terrible hours, and one only, the thought of Catherine's safety. It was strange and unexpected, but Catherine, the most normal and healthy of women, had a hard struggle for her own life and her child's, and it was not till the grey autumn morning, after a day and night which left a permanent mark on Robert, that he was summoned at last, and with the sense of one emerging from black gulfs of terror, received from his wife's languid hand the tiny fingers of his firstborn. The days that followed were full of emotion for these two people, who were perhaps always over-serious, over-sensitive. They had no idea of minimising the great common experiences of life. Both of them were really simple, brought up in old-fashioned, simple ways, easily touched, responsive to all that high spiritual education which flows from the familiar incidents of the human story, approached poetically and passionately. As the young husband sat in the quiet of his wife's room, the occasional restless movements of the small brown head against her breast causing the only sound perceptible in the country silence, he felt all the deep, familiar currents of human feeling sweeping through him, love, reverence, thanksgiving, and all the walls of the soul, as it were, expanding and enlarging as they passed. Responsive creature that he was, the experience of these days was hardly happiness. It went too deep, it brought him too poignantly near to all that is most real, and therefore most tragic, in life. Catherine's recovery, also, was slower than might have been expected, considering her constitutional soundness, and for the first week, after that first moment of joy, when her child was laid upon her arm, and she saw her husband's quivering face above her, there was a kind of depression hovering over her. Robert felt it, and felt too that all his devotion could not soothe it away. At last she said to him one evening, in the encroaching September twilight, speaking with a sudden hurrying vehemence, wholly unlike herself, as though a barrier of reserve had given way, Robert, I cannot put it out of my head. I cannot forget it, the pain of the world. He shut the book he was reading, her hand in his, and bent over her with questioning eyes. It seems, she went on, with that difficulty which a strong nature always feels in self-revelation, to take the joy even out of our love, and the child. I feel ashamed almost that mere physical pain should have laid such hold on me yet I can't get away from it. It's not for myself." And she smiled faintly at him. Comparatively I had so little to bear. But I know now for the first time what physical pain may mean, and I never knew before. I lie thinking, Robert, about all creatures in pain—workmen, crushed by machinery, or soldiers, or poor things in hospitals, above all of women. Oh, when I get well, how I will take care of the women here! What women must suffer, even here in out-of-the-way cottages! No doctor, no kind nursing, all blind agony and struggle! And women in London, in dens like those Mr. Newcombe got into, degraded, forsaken, ill-treated, 
the thought of the child only an extra horror and burden. And the pain all the time, so merciless, so cruel, no escape. Oh, to give all one is, or ever can be, to comforting. And yet the great sea of it one can never touch. It is a nightmare. I am weak, I am weak still, I suppose. I don't know myself, but I can see nothing but jarred, tortured creatures everywhere. All my own joys and comforts seem to lift me selfishly above the common lot. She stopped, her large grey-blue eyes dim with tears, trying once more for that habitual self-restraint which physical weakness had shaken. "'You are weak,' he said, caressing her, "'and that destroys for a time the normal balance of things. "'It is true, darling, but we are not meant to see it always so clearly. "'God knows we could not bear it if we did.' "'And to think,' she said, shuddering a little, that there are men and women who in the face of it can still refuse Christ and the cross, can still say this life is all. How can they live? How dare they live? Then he saw that not only a man's pain, but man's defiance, had been haunting her, and he guessed what persons and memories had been flitting through her mind. But he dared not talk, lest she should exhaust herself. Presently, seeing a volume of Augustine's Confessions, her favourite book, lying beside her, he took it up, turning over the pages, and weaving passages together as they caught his eye. "'Speak to me for thy compassion's sake, O Lord my God, and tell me what art thou to me. Say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. Speak it, that I may hear. Behold the ears of my heart, O Lord. Open them, and say unto my soul, I am thy salvation. I will follow after this voice of thine. I will lay hold on thee. The temple of my soul, wherein thou shouldst enter, is narrow.' Do thou enlarge it. It falleth into ruins. Do thou rebuild it. Woe to that bold soul which hopeth, if it do but let thee go, to find something better than thee. It turneth hither and thither, on this side and on that, and all things are hard and bitter unto it. For thou only art rest. Whithersoever the soul of a man turneth, it findeth sorrow, except only in thee. Fix there, then, thy resting-place, my soul. Lay up in him whatever thou hast received from him. Commend to the keeping of the truth whatever the truth hath given thee, and thou shalt lose nothing. And thy dead things shall revive, and thy weak things shall be made whole. She listened, appropriating and clinging to every word, till the nervous clasp of the long, delicate fingers relaxed, her head dropped a little gently against the head of the child and tired with much feeling, she slept. Robert slipped away and strolled out into the garden in the fast-gathering darkness. His mind was full of that intense spiritual life of Catherine's, which in its wonderful self-containedness and strength was always a marvel, sometimes a reproach, to him. Beside her he seemed to himself a light creature, drawn hither and thither by this interest and by that, tangled in the fleeting shows of things, the toy and plaything of circumstance. He thought ruefully and humbly, as he wandered on through the dusk, of his own lack of inwardness. "'Everything divides me from thee,' he could have cried in Sir Augustine's manner. "'Books and friends and work all seem to hide thee from me. Why am I so passionate for this and that, for all these sections and fragments of thee? Oh, for the one, the all! Fix there thy resting-place, my soul!' and presently, after this cry of self-reproach, 
He turned to muse on that intuition of the world's pain which had been troubling Catherine, shrinking from it even more than she had shrunk from it, in proportion as his nature was more imaginative than hers. And Christ, the only clue, the only remedy, no other anywhere in this vast universe, where all men are under sentence of death, where the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And yet what countless generations of men have borne their pain, knowing nothing of the one healer. He thought of Buddhist patience and Buddhist charity, of the long centuries during which Chaldean or Persian or Egyptian lived, suffered and died, trusting the gods they knew. And how many other generations, nominally children of the great hope, had used it as the mere instrument of passion or of hate, cursing in the name of love, destroying in the name of pity? For how much of the world's pain was not Christianity itself responsible? His thoughts recurred, with a kind of anguished perplexity, to some of the problems stirred in him of late by his historical reading. The strifes and feuds and violences of the early Church returned to weigh upon him, the hair-splitting superstition, the selfish passion for power. He recalled Gibbon's lamentation of the age of the Antonines, and Mommsen's grave doubt whether, taken as a whole, the area once covered by the Roman Empire can be said to be substantially happier now than in the days of Severus. O oh, corruptio optimi, that men should have been so little affected by that shining ideal of the new Jerusalem, descended out of heaven from God into their very midst, that the print of the blessed feet along the world's highway should have been so often buried in the sands of cruelty and fraud. The September wind blew about him as he strolled through the darkening column, set thick with great bushes of sombre juniper among the yellowing fern, which stretched away on the left-hand side of the road leading to the hall. He stood and watched the masses of restless, discordant clouds which the sunset had left behind it, thinking the while of Mr. Gray, of his assertions and his denials. Certain phrases of his which Robert had heard drop from him on one or two rare occasions during the later stages of his Oxford life, ran through his head. The fairy tale of Christianity, the origins of Christian mythology. He could recall, as the words rose in his memory, the simplicity of the rugged face, and the melancholy mingled with fire, which had always marked the great tutor's sayings about religion. Fairy tale! Could any reasonable man watch a life like Catherine's, and believe that nothing but a delusion lay at the heart of it? and as he asked the question he seemed to hear Mr. Gray's answer. All religions are true, and all are false. In them all, more or less visibly, man grasps at the one thing needful, self-forsaken, God laid hold of. The spirit of them all is the same, answers eternally to reality. It is but the letter, the fashion, the imagery that are relative and changing. He turned and walked homeward, struggling with a host of tempestuous ideas as swift and varying as the autumn clouds hurrying overhead. And then, through a break in a line of trees, he caught sight of the tower and chancel window of the little church. In an instant he had a vision of early summer mornings, dewy, perfumed, silent, save for the birds, and all the soft stir of rural birth and growth, of a chancel fragrant with many flowers, of a distant church with scattered figures, of the kneeling form of his wife close beside him, himself bending over her, the sacrament of the Lord's death in his hand. The emotion, the intensity, 
the absolute self-surrender of innumerable such moments in the past. Moments of a common faith, a common self-abasement, came flooding back upon him. With a movement of joy and penitence, he threw himself at the feet of Catherine's master and his own. Fix there thy resting place, my soul. End of Book 3, Chapter 19